Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How were you feeling yesterday morning, Sam? Yesterday morning, uh, I was so hungover that I had to retreat to a gorgeous York cafe where they were playing the audiobooks from Harry Potter 5 and um, slowly had to apply my gag reflex due to how much I had drank the night before. Because I haven't, I, I tried to not drink before gigs for quite a long time to, you know, get my voice back in the swing of things. And so a low tolerance for alcohol added to a late finish added to a short amount of time to get drunk in and some poor decisions about bedtimes led to a severe hangover um but <laughs> it was accompanied by the soft pillow of a job well done <laughs> i like to think anyway maybe i'm just telling myself that but i didn't feel too like morally i don't think i made any bad decisions except for time i went to sleep otherwise so i was pretty chuffed what time we're we talking how early when it comes to the early hours of the morning? Yeah, I'm not sure on the exact time. All I was told is I fell asleep into a glass of Aspals, um, which is yeah, <laughs> as middle class as you can imagine. At a friend's house as well, because obviously the pubs close at um, 12 latest at the moment. So yeah, I fell asleep into a glass of some alcohol um, at some point and uh, woke up with having, lo- having broken. So I, I bought a cowboy outfit for our gig at the Minster. And nice. I bought this bolo tie, which is one of those cowboy things. And I've just, nah, well, nah, I thought I'd fixed it again. But no, yeah, I've accidentally broken it because of my uh, accident involving an Aspel's glass. <laughs> Weren't you in uh, Fairy Wings the last time you played before this when you were in York? Yeah, no, yeah. Well, it's always, I, I was told that I was not allowed to have any angelic costume on because it may have, it may offend the canon at the minster it may offend the arch the, the archbishop could storm onto our gig smack me call me judas like lay me out um <laughs> and then sing the rest of the set himself and i wasn't having that so i just wasn't allowed to dress dress up as an angel for this particular gig which i was so you thought you go cowboy 
I decided to go cowboy. It's like, what? there's nothing in the Bible about cowboys, or if there is, then I'm missing the exciting chapters. So I decided to go as a cowboy. Um, and yeah, people seemed to dig it. I got the big thumbs up from God. It came in through the top of the ceiling <laughs> at the end of the gig. With the big you looked gig. over to the stained glass window and Jesus had raised his left hand. <laughs> yeah, he, well, he was, doing, he, he was doing that. He was doing the uh, devil horns, which was <laughs> ironic, I guess, but he really enjoyed it. He's really And he was it. fully clad in kiss makeup. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'd read this version of the Bible. Man, that sounds good. So on the book of Revelations, man. Yeah, exactly. Book of rock <laughs> rock relations. Do you never take any like inspiration lyrically from like kind of holy imagery? Like Leonard Cohen and stuff, he was pretty big into his Yeah. That sort of stuff. That it's definitely something that because you're yeah, you're right. Dylan and Cohen and people like that and Tom Waits and stuff have have such a great basis in scripture and it's something that i've always wanted to look into but i'm so thick and badly read in terms of the bible <laughs> that i'd only be referencing those people's songs <laughs> i've never really it never really interested me the older i get the more it interests me and the sort of like the scope of some of those stories and things like that is amazing and but i think yeah i think i'm more interested in the sort of folk music and lyrical music traditions that go hand in hand with biblical imagery so stuff like samson and delilah i've always been obsessed with samson because it's close to my name but like that whole that story is really cool and i almost forget that's in the bible because i was almost more, i think i was more interested in Greek and Roman myths when I was a teenager. I think there's some really good stories there. Absolutely bonkers as well. They really didn't hold anything back. Not that they did in the Bible, of course, but like the Greek and Roman myths, there's there's a lot of songs there that haven't been written. I don't know how well it's getting. A lot of incest and shit in like Greek. Oh, and like turn, turning your kids into a <laughs> swan because they stepped on your dog's tail and stuff like that. It's just brilliant. <laughs> I mean, obviously you get your, your fair share of weird shit in the Bible, but... Man, the Greeks did not hold back. Well, it's like Cronus eating his kids and stuff. Oh, yeah, it's good shit. Oh, was that Zeus? Or the same? Uh, Jupiter and Zeus. Uh, what did Cronus do? Um, I think it's Cronus, maybe the Rome, Roman version of Zeus. That's, that's Jupiter. Zeus is the Greek one. That's, that's, okay. Yeah, that's Jupiter, the big daddy. But maybe, but I think Cronus might have been one of his sons or something. Or maybe, where am I getting that from? What's Cronus in? I watched a Disney film with him in it recently. I don't know. It's a Gamaldol Toro film as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're right. Once again, the fact that I'm basing my um, religious and scriptural knowledge off of Disney films and Bob Dylan lyrics shows how unequipped I am to be able to write anything <laughs> decent about it. We'll try it one day. We'll just do sort of like a, what have I heard through the grapevine about this particular biblical character and see if I can write an album about it. But until then, <laughs> I might have to hold on. When you say you're kind of getting drawn towards those stories a little bit more as you get older too, is that just from a storytelling point of view or is there more of an interest in faith blossoming too? Um, not faith in a particularly religious or spiritual level, but I think it's just, yeah, the storytelling, the narratives of those stories is so good. And especially when you see how they inspired stuff like Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, and how they even inspired, like, you know, the atheistic works. And I'm a big fan of Philip Pullman and he did the, his Dark Materials trilogy and it's just like the scope of those things and he's borrowing a lot from religious imagery and putting it into his work and because those themes are usually so vast they're in so much stuff like even even stuff like duality of God and the devil is is essentially all duality within fiction itself it's just this is one of the oldest examples of it and I think there's so much that can be drawn from that really basic storytelling that is plays so much of a part in um, just Western art, I think, right? Like, you know, we, we'll always see depictions of 
snakes and apples and lightning and thunder and grass and earth and animals and things like that because I mean obviously it's their universal concepts but they were put in a particular way it was really interesting actually like having a bit of a an oddly transcendent experience standing at the back of the minster looking at I think it's called the great west window and it essentially shows the story of creation until um, judgment day but all in these incredible glass paneling and it's Bonkers just remembering all of the shit I forgot at Sunday school through not listening and messing around and stuff. But, you do, you know, these things are ingrained into our public consciousness as a version of storytelling, especially from a Western perspective. And it was nice seeing it in that, being reminded of it in a much more beautiful setting and not being forced to go on like a National Trust Heritage Day by my parents or school definitely made me appreciate it in a different way, you know. It's like a lot of things when it comes to learning, isn't it? When you come to it on your own and you kind of discover it through exploration it's a lot easier to become interested in it rather than if you're sat down and told to read the bible at seven years old or whatever exactly no one told me to like it so this time around i'm getting interested in it who knows maybe (laughs) give me a year and i'll be a saint i'll be a vicar uh i'll be so fully involved within christian teaching that i'll have turned a new leaf but at the moment i just like the stories and the pretty pictures (laughs) did you have a crowd at the show yeah we had 150 people in the audience wow and a 12-piece choir and a four-piece string section. Beautiful. It was, uh, it was bonkers. Well, uh, I, think, I think it's going to be out tomorrow um, to stream. So people could stream it live. <clears throat> but um, th- I think tomorrow, Friday, the, whenever it is, um, people are going to be able to actually re-watch it as a full film. And I am so glad of that because it's one of the only things that I think we've ever filmed that I didn't fuck up on. I don't think, unless there's something that I'm missing and I was just caught up in the joy of it, I don't think I fucked up too bad. You know, I think it's like, and there's like a sense of permanence to that. Like, I didn't fuck up too bad. People can keep watching this. I'm so, I'm so happy. Is that partly because there is that pressure where you can't refilm it? Like, if you're doing something that's pre-recorded, there's always a tendency where if it really goes wrong, you can go back and change it a little bit. Whereas if you're streaming live... There's no safety net. Exactly. And the fact that we hadn't played it to an audience in seven and a half months and that there was, that it's York Minster. It's like, it's one of the reasons I moved to York when I was 18 is because I saw that building and thought it was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. And it's like undeniably beautiful. And the fact that we got to play, you know, a rock gig in, in it was, was super cool. But the, it was, yeah, it's, it's exactly that. It's the, the fact that you're only in there for one day, one evening, and then it's done and you sort of have to get it right. You know, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like the stained glass windows that they can take 200 years to make. We've got to get something right in about three hours uh, and then get it done. So I'm really glad that like everything went well. I remembered the words. I didn't say anything really stupid. Uh, I don't, I don't think I did any swear words on the air. Overall, I'm pretty chuffed with that. Like those were my main three boxes that I needed to tick. I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, even any swear words in the songs. Are there swear words in the songs? Actually, I don't know if there are. There's a song. There was a song I was worried about playing called a hotel song, which is talking about which I guess just questioning uh, one's relationship with uh, spiritual beings when you feel so desolately alone that you don't feel like there's anyone else in the world. And I was a bit worried about, you know, the canon who had just introduced us sort of cottoning on to the existential lyrics and, you know, just turning down my microphone and saying, no, 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 no. He's big, big up to God. You're still in our thoughts and prayers and stuff like that. But luckily he didn't interrupt. There wasn't, there were no interruptions. And I don't think any swear words. 
I have, I'll have to think about that. I don't think I put any swear words in any songs yet. I was taught it was weak to swear in a song. So it's like a Jerry Seinfeld thing, isn't it, as well? Yeah, well, it's like yeah. a cheap laugh. It's a cheap laugh, yeah. It's sort of a shock. I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think of, there really aren't many artists these days that I'm listening to that swear in songs anyway. The National did it, I think, and I quite like that. I think he just put the word fuck at the end of a verse. I, I think it was good. <laughs> uh, it worked pretty well. But yeah, dramatic no, effect. Exactly, for dramatic effect. But yeah, I don't know if swearing in songs is that great unless it's, it needs to be involved in this, the telling of the story. I'm trying to think of another one, but... Mm. It can become a crutch, particularly in hip-hop stuff. Yeah, it can. But a lot of the time, because hip-hop is so conversational and so narrative-driven, it's almost allowed because it's so such a linguistic part of the way that a lot of the people that write hip-hop lyrics are talking and speaking to each other. You know, it's like, why detract from how they talk to each other just to like not to, to not get the parental advisory sticker on the front? Whereas we're just, you know, polite young men. <laughs> <laughs> but then a lot of your, or not a lot, but some of your songs do take on a slightly conversational shape. Or it's like you're speaking to someone. Like Sweet Fading Silver, for example. Yeah. Are there any swear words in that one? No, I don't think really, I, I don't know. But yeah, absolutely. I would, so there's some of my favourite lyrics when you can make them, when you literally make it sound like a conversation, when you make it sound like they've been lifted out of a script of someone hovering over your bed or something and things that you, you, got, you, you guys are saying to each other because it can feel so intensely personal and it's like, you know, someone's got a camcorder of a particular moment of conversation. That to me is particularly real. That's a really nice way to summate a situation. If you can get a scene like that that summates how you think about something, that's one of the most perfect lyrics, I think, you know. So it's almost like you having a conversation about a particular experience and just summarising how you feel about it. It could be that, or it could be if you take a snapshot of a conversation and the two characters within it are talking about something that happened or they're reacting about something that's happened and that manages to capture something about an emotion. It, you know, it can be as... It can be a step far away from the conversation enough while still being able to say something. I mean, I'm, I'm sounding as sort of vague as I possibly can <laughs> because I think <laughs> a lot of the time the, va- the best songs are as vague as possible. You know, they, they, they sort of blur the edges and you never really know the answer. Um, it's the sort of vague vibe that I'm on about at the moment. If a song raises a question and never really answers it, I think a lot of the best songs do that. You know, I've been getting back into my Bob Dylan and stuff because it was his 80th the other day. I saw it, yeah. And... Um, yeah, he that guy doesn't answer many questions, and I love that. I can't believe he's still going. Yeah, man, I saw him a couple of years ago, and I mean, people say going strong. I don't, I don't know about strong, but he's they're still wheeling him out, and I don't, I don't know what they're <laughs> pumping him full of. But that guy is still vertical. Did he seem fairly lucid when you saw him? Lucid, yeah, but they were, I saw him at the Royal Albert Hall once. And he didn't acknowledge that there was a crowd there for about 80 minutes until at one point, I think, in Spirit on the Water, he was, so he sort of, he sort of faces off to the side, like this, at a 90 degree, degree angle to the crowd. And he, and he plays the keyboards like that because he's got arthritis, he can't play guitar anymore. He plays like that. And the only bit in the, um, the only moment of recognition that he was playing a gig was when he turned about 15 degrees like that to the crowd and then turned back and people went insane. It was like it was like he he like got his sixties voice back or something. It was bonkers. People went absolutely mental, and I I thought that was quite touching. The fact that he just it didn't say anything either. He just you know 
moved himself a 15 degree angle uh, angle closer to the audience and people felt like uh, he knew they existed which i think most people want from him that's all they want did he make the, the kind of devil sign sadly not he did do a backflip after that though and then an animal sacrifice on stage <laughs> in kiss what makeup animal? in kiss makeup oh, it was just a just a kid just a boy <laughs> a child yeah just a child yeah i um so you did a beer as well for the York Minster show. Oh, we did, yeah. Kirkstall Brewery did a beer for us, which was amazing. I've had some. It's delicious. And it sounds like I'm plugging the beer now, but it honestly is amazing. It's really good. It's a vegan, gluten-free IPA, and it's f- fucking incredible. And yeah, and then Connor, our guitar player, designed the can for it and everything. And yeah, it's called Human Contact. Um, it was, yeah, we, we'd always talked about doing a beer because we're big beer drinkers and we wanted to do a cool beer. And this, if we were, we just thought we'd go all out with this gig, really. We were like, we, we, we even made a gin, but I don't think anyone bought any. But we, we were just like, oh, let's just do everything. Let's do a poster. We've done a colouring book. Someone stop us. I've seen a lot of people doing colouring books. Yeah, there's an option at all the merch stores now to do colouring books. And if you can, if you can be able to get, what is it, 16 pages together or something, 12 pages together, what's the harm in it? You know, get some crayons, give yourself a couple of hours, lose yourself, put the record, <laughs> put the record on a couple of times, lose yourself with some crayons. I think, yeah. But then you could have like a page for each song and a kind of illustration, especially with Con- Connor's like a visual artist, right? Yeah, or yeah. A graphic designer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been a better idea than what we did. Because <laughs> we're the, what, what are you doing? We're we, well, Connor is an amazing graphic designer. And so we collated a lot of his ideas that we'd used for artwork, artworks over the previous times. But because we had 12 songs and we've got like, what, a 12 or 13 song album, we really should have done what you just suggested. But instead we just sort of like spammed various things on different pages in a sort of like reckless and unthought of way until finally the product was finished and we could sit down on the sofa again. But um, yeah, there's a lot of weird little drawing. I haven't seen the full product yet. They're going to be going out, I think, in the next couple of days but um i submitted i think 78 drawings of my own that i've been doodling over the last six or seven years so i apologize in advance if anyone is seeing any sort of QAnon signs in any of these things like they're not in they're not there on purpose these are just like drawings that i did when i was drunk or uh you know bored how can you draw when you're drunk um badly if it turns (laughs) out yeah just, ter- just terribly. I, I mean, there, there is no, again, lucidity. There's no lucidity to these drawings. <laughs> Nothing was done uh, intentfully. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to wait and see what comes out. I'm excited to see the colouring book. I just want to own a, I don't think I've owned a colouring book since I was about four. So, if anything, that's going to be a treat for me. I got one a few years ago because they were supposed to kind of relax you. You know, like um, mm. one of those kind of adult colouring books that you're supposed to colour in and it's supposed to chill you out. But... When, you, when you say adult colouring books... What are we talking? I, I think it was like landscapes and stuff, but it was supposed to okay, be for cool. adults. It wasn't like, a, it was like complicated. Yeah. That was part of the problem though, because although it was supposed to relax, I didn't feel relaxed. I just got very kind of uptight and anal about making sure I didn't go out with the lines. Yeah, well, I'm... And what, it would stress me out if it didn't look good. Absolutely. It's just the way that you stress the, uh, the second syllable in adult. I thought it was a very different type of colouring book. And I was like, <laughs> I was wondering, wondering how they were going to do that because there's probably a market for it. Porn colouring books. Exactly. Well, you know, hardcore colouring books. The Howl and the Hums hardcore colouring books. <laughs> Coming to a WH Smith near you soon. How, uh, <laughs> do you, do you doodle in the same, um, do you doodle in the same books that you write in? You yeah, phased me not, there for a not, bit with that not, adult, n- uh, not nudes. 
I don't doodle nudes. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's drawings next to a lot of the lyrics and stuff and things that I'm thinking because it's different because you have to sort of. I've, well, I found recently a little trick to get so if I can if I've like if I sit down and write a song, say you've only got a certain amount of time that you can write before you have to go out, you've got to meet some friends, something like that. You've got to try and stay in the same mindset that you were in when you had that first idea, because that first initial idea is usually the best, the strongest idea. It's the big spark. So if you can draw in a thing to be able to draw from, uh, when you come back to that idea, if you can sort of like get your head into that state again, that's super useful. You're getting yourself back into the character, into the main idea, into the scenery. If you're adding scenery, I find that a lot easier to get back into the character of the song. And then as a result, you know, it sort of speeds along the process because it's so hard if you've come, if you if you feel like you've got this idea and you come back to it on another day and it, like the magic's gone, you feel like the magic's gone. It's so hard to get back into, you know, to be re-inspired. So if you can, you know, there's there's little there's little drawings to remind myself of like various scenes that I'd like I'd rather not pick down the word because I'd like if you can if you can express it through just a doodle or something it it puts you back in the place a little more directly I think fully back in the place or kind of just skirting around the outskirts of it can you ever truly get back to the the headspace of when the initial spark came to you well yeah probably not but then if that's the case then I always enjoy the um the sort of different journey that it's taken me on the you know the the next route the wrong turns are usually interesting and useful you love a road metaphor uh, truly i need to stop <laughs> i need to stop writing about fucking cars man <laughs> i was reading i saw today I, I was looking back through some of your stuff and you did a post when i think it was when sweet fading silver came out maybe where you spoke about very in depth the location in which the fiat punto mm. breaks down and you had a very kind of like few good paragraphs, you know, description about that place going into incredible detail. <laughs> yeah. Is that something you can do for every song? Do you kind of have that level of understanding for it? It depends. Again, it depends on the song. Not every single song, no, but that one is one that I think of. That one had a lot of doodles in it. And that was, uh, again, and it happened with a few songs that I wrote when I was starting out as well. But that song was written as a kind of joke to a friend of mine because we used to have to suffer on the megabus from York to the East Midlands Parkway and then get the get on a weird rickety old train from East Midlands Parkway to London, Euston or King's Cross. And it was the shittest journey. And it was like the three quid journey for us to go see, see our friends in London. And the East Midlands Parkway, Parkway is one of the ugliest places I've ever been to in my life. It's, it's just these like four cooling towers in the middle of nowhere. And they're, they're, it's one of the places where like, everything is just stopped. Everything is frozen in time, and the same lady works at the uh, the sandwich bar there, and just like is constantly it's miserable about the same thing. And um, the coffee is the same coffee as the coffee it was six years ago, and you know they've never changed anything in there. It's just this place completely stuck in time, and so it was a bit of a joke to include it as this I don't know pur- purgatory. Um, in this song and then it took on a bit more meaning because you know it goes into the story of the car being stuck and you know the t- and then I went back and then found out that the <laughs> road that goes from the East Midlands Parkway to Nottingham is called Remembrance Way or Remembrance Road and I was like fuck man that's written itself <laughs> so now, so you don't like something about the fact that it's stuck in time as well though you know those kind of places in the I love world it. that feel like they're kind of on the edge of reality I yeah. absolutely love it which is like 
why I had to why I had to be included in a song. Yeah, it sounds like I'm being really derogatory of East Midlands Parkway, and I love its ugliness. I like I adore it. <laughs> They're sort of industrial, super smoky, really polluted part of the world, which is this sort of like the hinge between the north and the south. I, I think it's an amazing place, and you would get no. There's nowhere else like it on the planet. It's just like a, it's a purgatory for megabus tourists. It's fascinating. It's like the sort of people get lost on the Greyhound bus in America and people get lost at the East Midlands Parkway in the same way. You know, it's our version of that uh, Route 66 in a way. And I just I find that fascinating. So, yeah, more songs need to be written about the Midlands, I think. <laughs> Do you find there are other places like that in your life, like other places in Essex that have taken on a similar kind of shape where they just don't change? Uh, my hometown, yeah. I'm from Colchester, which is one of these really... I keep moving between really old cities. So there's Colchester, which is in Britain's oldest recorded town. It's like it's, you know, the Romans were there and Boudicca knocked about for a bit. And I think... So near the sea? Uh, not too far from the sea. Okay, yeah. 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 Uh, apparently Humpty Dumpty was written in and about a place in Colchester. So there's that. It's super old and it's cool, but it's like one of those places where the old bits are always going to stay there, the castle and the Roman walls and stuff like that. And everything else is weirdly also stuck in its own way. Like the only real things that change are the phone shops and the hairdressers. But otherwise it's one of those places that does seem to be a little bit stuck in time. It's a strange place. And then for some reason I decided to move to York where once again, it's got such history. And then, uh, but then I guess the sort of size of the town means it is it's stuck in this odd time loop. But again, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. It, I I do love it. And I think it's so quintessentially British to be stuck in this weird version of its own past. You know, it's like, it's in this strange time loop that that it'll never get out of. And I think there's something beautiful about that. You know, I think that's sort of Britain's problem and its essence in in one go still holding on to the empire I, oh man i've been writing about that a lot actually i think there's have you actually yeah yeah I, was, I find it fascinating people's obsession with the empire because it's it's you know it's inspiring a lot of people's political motivations and political inspiration at the moment especially with brexit and things like that people are still holding on to this idea that britain what even used to be great and you know it's it's just so fascinating to see because have you heard about the the crystal palace the original crystal palace no i doing a bit of research into this let's see if i've got it on my computer i wrote something down about it because it's i did i did i just got again probably just a bit drunk and bored one day but decided to <laughs> research the crystal palace because i didn't i didn't know too much about it but um so yeah the crystal palace was like this massive amazing structure built it basically showed, it, it was called a great, in 1851, there was a great exhibition at the Crystal Palace, which essentially showed off Britain's empiric values. It had all of these marvels from around the empire and they were all brought to the palace. They were like animals. There were, um, there was a zoo, there was artworks, there was inventions. There were like all of these things and like th- hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people came to see it. Um, and it's, it was this bonkers place, super popular. And then in 1936, it set on fire. Um, apparently there was like an explosion inside and then the, it, it set on fire and all of this stuff inside it um, got lost and started to set, like, set ablaze. And apparently Winston Churchill watched it burn down. About uh, 100,000 people apparently came to Sydenham Hill um, and they called it like the end of an age because they, you just saw this empire. Well, not even an empire, the, this sort of 
uh, everything that could symbolise an empire that was kept in this strange glass building in London was being set, in fire, set on fire before their eyes. But by 1936, the majority of it had disappeared anyway. You know, the, Britain had like lost hold of its grasp on so much of the, so many of the populations that had previously. Was India gone by that point? Not sure. I know that um, Churchill had committed some serious war crimes over there and let about two million people starve after the famines. But yeah, I'm not sure on the exact dates of uh, Indian independence, but I find that so, like, you know, it's something that I'm only beginning to research and realise the importance of, especially when um, considering British rights' version of their own history and, uh, you know, our own greatness. It's, yeah, it's something I'm very interested in, and I think it's very apparent within a conservative mindset. Once Queenie goes. Oh, she's really holding on for dear life, isn't she? How long do, how long do <laughs> lizards live for? Because I, I, like, I don't know what you know tortoises are, but they live for like 150 years, and she's got something like that in her. Yeah, she has a bit of a Komodo dragon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she must have like a shell or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's like rebounding bullets, because the amount of people that must have tried to kill the Queen is ridiculous. Like, what's she made of? Of fiberglass. I do think, like what we were saying there, though, she is this thing that is still connected to the empire because she was around when it was around, and she's this like tangible connection we have to it. Yeah. And once that goes, it gets easier. It's to say, it's like with wars as well. Once everyone who was directly involved with like World War One or Two is gone, mm. it becomes a lot more distant a memory than it was, say, thirty years ago or so. Exactly, much hazier. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting few years because what does Charles stand for? He's just a weird joke. He's like this really strange, just this strange-looking guy who's just sort of the son of the Queen. That's why I think the monarch. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 like, he's I definitely the monarch for our times, though. When you look at Trump and Johnson, Charles fits right in as the kind of monarch equivalent of that. No, you're totally right, and he looks really silly as well. I just can't imagine him on money. <laughs> Can you imagine him? Like, can you imagine holding a coin and it's got Charles's head on it? Oh no! He kind of looks like a caricature. That. Yeah, he does. He does. What happens with does? I, this is just me being dumb. But what happens with all the money with the Queen on it? Because surely there's loads of that. Does it just get smelted and just sort of like turned into Charles's face and all the pound, all the notes and stuff like that? Do we have to give them back? I presume so. But I mean, I don't know how many times would this actually have happened because she's been in since the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Well, I guess, I, I'm sure, I hope someone's thinking of it, because if not, we've really cracked a case here. <laughs> if not, we should start, like, we should spread a panic, because what happens to all our money? And why do I have to have Charles's face in my pocket? Well, money will be gone by the time she's gone. Money will be gone, yeah, exactly. It will, it'll be all digital and... NFTs, yeah. On your phone. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That's what you should get involved with, with the colouring book. How long the harm NFT colouring book? That's a good idea. Well, or we could just start exchanging colouring books as its own currency because at some point they'll just become so precious to you know the onward thought of uh, both empire and human progress that we might we might as well just use coloring books as a currency genius do you do you see a certain britishness or an englishness in your songwriting sometimes again i have done because only recently there's not i don't think there is on the first album really there's a couple of little mentions and things like that but yeah there's i don't know if I really hear a particularly British band in the way that there was in the 90s and everyone was vying and fighting for it, you know, Blur and Oasis, especially when you see the pictures of Blur with like the uh, the bulldog and the, you know, they had this like, they, they really wanted to be that, again, that sort of like empiric 
uh, well, empirical version of British. They were also taking the piss, though. They were, exactly. But there's something I find really funny about that and something that I do kind of relate to. Because, well, Blur are also from my hometown. There's something very close to my heart about Blur and their version of Britishness and Oasis's version of Britishness as well. And this, the way that those worlds collide to me is almost big melting pot of what it means to be British at the moment. But also there's so many other different versions and something so melancholic about people, you know, um, realizing that there is an end to an empire and looking back and feeling nostalgic for something that they weren't necessarily part of. So I guess there's moments of that on the album. There's definitely, you know, nostalgia for things that happened, but I don't know if we've uh, spread enough to a wider sort of patriotic vibe yet, but I think there's still time, you know, who knows? Also, I'm, I'm my, well, my heritage is Welsh, which I'm very proud of a lot of the time. And there's definitely a musical element of that in our songs, whether or not it's particularly evident, I'm not sure. But What do you mean by that? Well, there's such a, there's such a musical tradition in Wales that it was very much hereditary. It was very much passed down. Like when I go see my Welsh family, there's always songs being sung. Like you can't go, you can't get three Welsh people in a car and not sing Tom Jones as far as I know. Like it had, literally has to happen. And because Wales is so small, it's so strange. Like everyone has a musical connection in that country, but there's only three million people in the country, which I find bonkers, but you get some of the greatest series. Like I've got tickets right next to me on my desk right now to go see Tom Jones at the Brudenell in, uh, at the end of nice. August, which is going to be bonkers. And then my dad was telling me the other day, my cousin's first boyfriend used to manage the stereophonics. It's like, what the fuck's going on? Also <laughs> another claim to fame. My uncle's brother won a radio competition, uh, to be the worst singer in Wales. He won it. So my musical genealogy is really speaking for itself at the moment. I'm just trying to imagine how bad the worst singer in Wales sounds. You don't want to know. <laughs> Didn't you grow up in Scotland as well, though? Yeah, I lived in Dumfries for a while. I'm from all over, man. Jet-setting lifestyle from the age of four. <laughs> how long were you up here for? Uh, four years or something, I think. Or maybe I was three when I moved over. I can't remember. But yeah, we were over there for a few years because my dad worked up there. And yeah, I, so Scotland holds a very dear place in my heart, which is why we always come back to the Highlands as well. And I try and make a trip to Dumfries. But I've got a lot of friends in Glasgow and Scotland and now on Orkney as well, of course. <laughs> one of my favourite places on the planet. Do you have any memories from when you were here the first time? When you were age four to eight? Yeah. Well, the uh, Robert Bur Rabbi Burns Museum and the uh, Camera Obscura very fun. In Edinburgh? In, uh, in Dumfries. I think it's in Dumfries. Oh, there's one in Dumfries as well. Yeah, I think so. I have very firm memories of me putting my hand on the ball thing that's in the middle and watching the cars roll over it and thinking that I had humans in my veins. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the Rob Robbie Burns Museum and my teacher really not liking me at Laurie Now Primary School for being English, which, you know what, fair enough. I don't, I don't <laughs> like the English either. <laughs> I am it. It's kind of, that is also kind of tapping into a similar thing you know what we were saying about England being very much tied to this empire Scotland almost goes even further back in the sense that we can't seem to escape this idea that we're like trampled on almost mm, absolutely when I think and I think there's a camp maybe a possible camaraderie with the Welsh there as well because I think Wales almost think the same thing as themselves but yeah it's the these are these like old ideas of greatness is so strange to us because I think I also think there's some sections of the English who are quite 
what's the word? Well, don't particularly like their Englishness. I know me and a lot of friends have like severe sort of phobia of certain elements of Englishness and a real dislike of certain parts that we're come to be associated with, you know, those stag do's and hen do's that make themselves particularly present at airports. And, um, you know, we've never been proud of the Brexit vote and things like that, but there's, uh, but then we have to hold on to the things that we are proud of, you know, and things like football can bring us closer together, which is always nice. Sometimes the rugby, but then again, sometimes those things push us even further apart. So I'm not really sure. What else are you proud of when it comes to your Englishness? Um, music. Big fan of a lot of the music. A big fan of um, the NHS. I think that's great. Let me. Th- I mean, there's there's more than that. Obviously, there's you know there's there's um, some great thinkers and uh, uh, big fan of Tony Benn. Big fan of. Uh, Liverpool Football Club in all its glory. For a show. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm really digging myself into a hole here. I think I'm getting myself hated <laughs> from all angles. Um, and uh, yeah, the I, I, the UK in general, the UK's music, it's probably finest export of the last however many thousand years it's existed. <laughs> Which they is don't one. put it like that though, do they? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. But it's strange that I really have to think about what makes me proud to be English. But there's a wider, there's a wider bracket to be proud of being British, I think. There's a sense of community, I think, that maybe a lot of other countries don't seem to have. I definitely hope so. I, get, I, I think it's strange us talking from like a sort of artistic viewpoint, I guess, because like our friends will all be artists and you know, involved in various art scenes in various cities. And, and there is a much more sort of um, communal togetherness feeling in those communities. So I'd like to believe that that, you know, goes a little wider than just those communities. And I can hope, I can pray that that's the case, even if it's not. Have you been writing a lot over the last year? I didn't last year. And then this year, things have turned around a lot, which has been so much better it was like lots of reasons like last year was no fun for anyone and we had the tour cancelled and we got in the album just we couldn't tour we still haven't toured the album and that's just such a strange feeling so there was no uh, ultimate desire to really make anything new at that point because I was like well I've spent the last however many years writing this album like do I really have to follow it up straight away but then this year I've sort of taken it into my stride a little bit more and the end of last year I started doing a lot of um, co-writes um, with friends on Zoom which then made me realise how much I enjoy writing that I enjoy creating and then as a result of that started utilising some of those co-writes and writing for The Howl and the Hum and they've been going better than I sort of thought they could have done and then as a result we're starting to focusing on certain themes like some of the ones that we've been talking today and some other ones and at the moment hitting a very broad trajectory in terms of what I want to be writing about but it's just nice to be back into a routine of writing again you know of being able to sit down and have a plethora of ideas to start on and whether those be musical or lyrical and it's so pleasant to be able to feel like that tap has water in it again you know <laughs> with what you were saying there as well about how you're touching on quite a broad kind of range of themes do you find when you're looking back at songs that you've written that 
the narrative or the the kind of sonic threads tend to stand out to you first? Uh, that's a good question. I, it honestly depends what music, what mood I'm in. Sorry, because I think the I, I get quite bipolar about this. I have either a very I, either I'm in the mindset that lyrics are the most important thing that's ever happened, or I'm of the mindset that music is the most important thing that's ever happened, and I'm very black and white about it. And at the moment, it's lyrics, but talk to me in three days, and it'll be the music again. It's like the, it, it's the complete. I understand from an external perspective when I'm not thinking too black and white that it is the marriage of those two things that will make something great, but it really depends which which side of the line I am on that particular day. And you just sort of have to embrace it. You know, you can go, if you're in a particularly good uh, mindset in terms of lyrics, then go down that route and then the music usually comes and vice versa as well, which is great. I think that's a good feeling, but I think you have to acknowledge what which side of that line you are, you know, to fully embrace it, to fully embrace the creative feeling there. But um, it's difficult. It's difficult because it doesn't always work either. And sometimes, you know, your brain feels like it's working against you. But if you can embrace it and sometimes take some space away, then it's easier to reapproach it, you know. But then when you look back on stuff, can you sometimes feel a little bit disassociated with it? Like, have you created something when you were very much in that space where you thought that music was the most important thing when you look back on it? when you're in the space where lyrics are the most important thing, how does that kind of balance itself out for you? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's very difficult to, well, I mean, I find it quite difficult to go back to listen to it anyway, to go back and listen to these songs, I guess. A lot of the time, the only time I'm reapproaching them is when I'm having to either learn the lyrics for a set or playing them on stage again. And I'd like to think that the songs do advance in some way, like there is um, always a new performance of these songs every time that we play them. So there isn't necessarily a set formula to the way we play a particular song, but obviously the chords and the lyrics will stay the same. But, so, you know, sometimes there is a bit of movement. There's, there's room for movement within the way a song can be performed if that is before, if, if reapproaching a song is just about performance. But if you're going back to things like re-listening to the music that you made once and trying to appraise it from a musical or a um, lyrical direction. Again, it really depends on the day of the week because some days I'm like, man, that was, I'm so fucking glad I came up with that. And some days I'm like, I need to fake my own death (laughs) and no one, I hope no one ever finds me because that's the worst lyric I've ever fucking heard. Why am I five years old? But yeah, it depends on the day of the week and how forgiving I'm being of myself. (laughs) And it also depends, I think, on what my output is at the time. If I'm writing a lot and I'm really proud of the stuff that I'm writing, then I'm like, fuck the old stuff. I'm starting a new band. I'm changing my name and I'm moving to Morocco and everyone in Morocco will love it. And if I'm not writing particularly well at the time, I'm like, how did I come up with that lyric? And how am I ever going to get there again? Actually, I'm never going to get there again. I'm going to call it quits now and move to Morocco. Either way, I'm going to Morocco. What about Fiji? Fiji's on the list as well. How did you cope last year if you weren't writing when that kind of catharsis that you get from it is missing from your life for such a sustained period of time? Uh, pizza. <laughs> I ate lots and lots of pizza and I drank a lot of beer. It was it was miserable. Um, no, well, I did I did write and there are songs from that year and some of them will at some point, I think, be released because I think it's one of those things where if I look back on that entire time, I'm like, it was a throwaway year. It was miserable. It was depressing. and I got nothing out of it. However, if I go month by month and actually think about what I did, actually, you know what? There's a couple of decent songs in there. 
it was miserable, but and I didn't write as much as I am now, but there are still some little seeds of things that are feeding into things that are being written now. And so it wasn't all doom and gloom. But um, yeah, a lot of pizza. Any particular kind? Just large. <laughs> <laughs> Just large, large pizzas. Yeah, and that's what I uh, used to get through 2020. Um, but no, there were, you know, there were lots of. It's weird because when you look back at that year, it's like you can think lots of things happened. But really, I swear, I just watched like The Simpsons seasons three to nine about eight times, and watched The Sopranos, and uh, probably spent about eight grand on Deliveroo. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, The Simpsons in pizza. I mean, there is. It's literally my favourite way to spend any time of day. But it doesn't mean that I should do that five days a week. So I'm really glad that music has now taken its place again and I can um, stop funding my local pizza parlour's children's university tuition fees. <laughs> it's interesting as well, you know, that now that you're kind of back into the swing of writing and it's progressing again, because for us, or for me at least, my impression of where the hell on the home sound is at is very much frozen in time at this period last year when you dropped the record. Where is it for you now? How far away are you at this point from where the album was at? Yeah, I mean, we're not into like Swedish language prog metal with like <laughs> jazz infusions and things like that. We're not that far, don't worry. But it's, yeah, no, there's definite progression. There's an acknowledgement of where the album was musically. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going back into the studio to record a new song with Jolie and again with the same producer. So there are all these elements that are still going to be the same, but... Uh, for us, the heart and soul of everything is the song. Everything around that can change, which to us is, you know, really exciting. It means that we can change the sound and we can uh, evolve everything as a result of that. But um, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to take a step away and go like, this is what the song sounds like. This is what this is everything that's happening musically with it at the moment. Because for me, I'm playing an acoustic guitar and I'm writing words and melodies. But Connor at the same time as doing all this magic graphic design stuff is being a little wizard with the production and learning all these new music softwares. And so there's elements of these like James Blakey things I think were sort of a little present on the album. There's like little moments of production and uh, electronic elements, but um, I don't know if we necessarily knew what we were doing. And this time around, I feel like we know what we're doing a little more. That's vaguely what I'll say because we also haven't had any finished versions of these songs back yet so who knows it could be a Swedish language metal prog jazz infused techno album so watch this space I think although you're saying you have a slightly better idea of what you're doing the good thing about Connor as well picking up that production is it might help to keep some of the naivety and like the freshness that comes from that in it by learning that new skill exactly part of me hopes that he always like retains that childish fascination and he does do that because that's connor's genius i'm not just like tooting connor's trumpet i'm sure he'd love that but um his sort of approach to things is to become so obsessed with them that he'll stay up till like 4am doing them but never now this is going to sound kind of rude but never master it but always sort of like spread yourself so that you can find all these new avenues and always just be a little bit of a beginner at everything rather which i think is it keeps that childish fascination and it means that you can still because I think making mistakes is the best way to make the most interesting things if you're making mistakes and if you're pushing yourself to things that you don't fully understand you're always going to make something slightly more interesting than constantly burrowing through the things that you're most familiar with you know yeah I mean following on for what you were saying there you were talking about Blur earlier on as well or we mentioned them briefly Damon Albon I know has never learned the guitar past a basic level Mm. 
he's always just kept at that level, so he always has something he can go back he can go back to when he needs that slightly, like you say, childish spark to kind of re-energize things and kickstart things again. I think that's the most exciting thing about it. And I've always been so jealous of people that never got um, a formal education in guitar because it's like a lot of the people that I know that never had a lesson are way better guitarists than the people that that did, that know what like the, an augmented fourth is and things like that. I was, there's a, one of my favourite bands in the world is a band called Dingus Khan from Manning Tree in Essex. I just remember standing outside a smoking area once and Ben, the singer, was playing some chords on the guitar and I was like, oh, is that like a G7? And he was like, oh, I have no idea. It just makes this sound. And then he just played it. And I was like, oh, that's so much cooler than the way I think about music. And I've always been so jealous of the way that he just, he's aiming for sound rather than necessarily knowing how he got there. And I think that's just the most exciting thing. You know, it's like a kid, like smashing their hands on a piano. And they're just doing it because it's, it's fun and it sounds good. And it's like, if you lose that love of music, then there's no point otherwise, is there? I mean, speaking of, didn't Joyum play Corn in the studio for you? Which is kind of feeding into that idea. Yeah, yeah, he did do that. <laughs> yeah, um, no comment. You're not a fan? I think they're great. I think Corn are great. I don't know how much influence they're going to have on our future recordings. I think the energy is there, though. Like, I, I understand why they're so big and I get that they're nutters. And I think that's really exciting. Was that what you tapped into when he played it for you, though? That energy? Was that what you kind of took from it and the reason he was giving it to you? I think a lot of that was us getting to know Jolene and Jolene getting to know us. Because the way I just reacted there to listen to Korn is like, it's not true. <laughs> I fucking love Korn. One of my favourite albums ever is like, well, Toxicity, System of a Down. And I listen to that when I run and when I do exercise. And that new metal vibe is like so deeply a part of who me and Jack, our drummer, like are, is, however that um, sentence structure works. But it, there's something so true about the anger in the message of that music and the way that they translated that, that I think fascinates Jodian and us. And I love that. And then, obviously, <laughs> we don't have that sort of distortion on the album, but we can appreciate the sort of emotional message of getting from a corn guitar sound and going, mm, yeah, and the emotion that that can conjure up to, like, <laughs> you know, having a keyboard sound on pigs, using the Rhodes piano on, on like, the outro to the album. So it might I wasn't not... expecting you to go for pigs there. Yeah, I don't know why I did, really. It's been a long day. <laughs> No, but that's like an interesting connection to make. Like going from the kind of anger of corn to the gentleness of pig. Well, exactly. It's like, I think you've got to use those maximised emotions to be able to portray something in music. It's like, there's, there's always room for subtlety, but there's also room for going over the top and trying to portray a message. And corn do that, and hopefully we did that all right as well. <laughs> Love that we've mentioned corn. We've been talking about corn for the last five minutes as well. Jolien's <laughs> going to love this. <laughs> that um, that kind of childish nature that we were talking about a few moments ago, just before we got into the corn tangent, where you said that Connor kind of finds that with this idea that he keeps pushing himself into new areas. Where have you found that lately? That kind of naivety? No, that's a good question. Uh, so I guess in terms of themes... Uh, in terms of what I've been writing about and collecting. So the last couple of days since playing the the gig, I've been sort of taking a step 
back from thinking about performing and starting to get back into a writing frame of mind, so doing quite a lot of reading and writing about certain things. And as soon as you find yourself broaching certain themes that you've never really thought about, that you've never really uh, challenged before, you get into a territory where you don't really know what you're talking about, which is, I think, some of the most exciting places to start writing creatively from, because this is exactly what I was talking about at the start. You don't know the answer to the questions you're asking. And that's sort of, it gets that naivety along because you don't know where you're going with a particular idea. That's sort of the best place to start. Again, probably why I talk about cars and roads and journeys so much is because you don't necessarily know where you're going. And I think there's such a romantic notion about that. Not necessarily having an end in sight, being that sort of like, in the David Lynch films, there's always the shot of like a, of the lion, the yellow lion in an, on an American highway, just going somewhere. We don't really know where it's going. There's something super romantic and fascinating about that. So... Um, it's nice. And there's, the, there's that David Bowie quote, which is always like, you need to push yourself to the furthest extremes. Go, go past your comfort level. Go out of your comfort zone. And that's how you make the most interesting music. And I think we can do that thematically. And I think when we come to producing and arranging the songs, we can do that from a sonic standpoint as well. That for us is just what is going to interest us, you know? That's what's going to make us most excited about releasing new music. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.